I'd like you to take a minute or a few a few seconds and think. What do you want from this practice? Can you remember what it was that (coughs) drove you here? Can you remember what it is you expect from this three months or from this practice? What is it? that is worth all of this pain, this discomfort, frustration, disappointment, anger, confusion, effort. What could possibly be worth it? Okay, enough thinking. We don't really have to think too much to realize that at some basic, really basic level, we come here because we're unhappy. And we're looking or hoping, expecting some sort of happiness, some indication of how to live our life a little better, a little kinder, a little gentler. a little more skillfully, with a little more wisdom. At this point in the retreat, you may begin wondering, or you may have be continuing wondering, what has this got to do with developing happiness? <laughs> in some, some of us, I know, probably think that we're going in just the other direction. But tonight I want to speak about this elusive wisdom or understanding or knowledge that we are so earnestly looking for here. It being, wisdom being the fifth of the spiritual faculties that I've been speaking about. And just to remind you, refresh your memory, the first that I spoke about was confidence or the faith the trust in the practice and in yourself to do the practice, giving rise to or being the cause for the arising of energy or effort or diligence in your practice, effort being the cause for the arising of or the development of mindfulness or the ability to observe, to attend to, and to be with your experience. Continuity of that continuity of just being present with this momentary experience leads to some collecting of the mind, some gathering of the mind, some focusing of the mind, some continuity of attention where the mind gets more concentrated. Concentration is the fourth of the spiritual faculties. Concentration or the sharp mind that's able to stay with our experience giving rise to wisdom or understanding. If we can stay with our experience, we come to know it. 
as it is, seeing into the intrinsic nature of this experience. These being the five faculties, the five controlling faculties of the mind in any spiritual practice. I want to tell a story that indicates or that will help to show how it is that wisdom develops in our practice. When I was growing up in Maine, a small town in Maine, <clears throat> there was a fellow that used to come to town every once in a while. It was a small town, so you knew if there was somebody new in town. There was a fellow that used to come to town occasionally, and he would eat in one of the restaurants. And he was what we colloquially would call a character. He was a real character. He was loud, and he was obvious, and probably obnoxious to some people. And he um, was very seemingly argumentative. Well, I avoided him. Some years later, after college, I went back to this area of Maine and was living. And I'd heard that this fellow was actually a butterfly collector. He used to collect butterflies. So I thought, well, now that's strange that he had such a reputation and he did something so gentle as collect butterflies. So I decided that I wanted to go see him. I wanted to go meet him. So I knew where he lived, or I found out where he lived, and I went to his house. And it was something like a, a back to the lander, although he'd always lived there. He hadn't gone back to anything. He'd always been there. I, a cabin in the woods and where he lived with his wife and without electricity or running water and he just lived there. So I told him, I said, uh, oh, I've heard that you collect butterflies and I'd like to uh, see, I'd like to see your collection. And he said, oh yeah, right, come in, come in. So he took me into his house and um, he took me into this one room that's about all oh, the size of my room upstairs or the size of any two rooms over in the Catskills. <clears throat> Just a little study. And it was lined from floor to ceiling, all four walls except for the window and doors, with bookshelves. And on these shelves were what looked like big books, about two inches thick and about a foot tall. But they weren't books, they were wooden boxes and there were hundreds of them. So I figured that must be the collection. So, this fellow, his name is Paul Gray. In talking with him, he seemed very reluctant to show me his butterflies. And it's like, I, I thought he would just start pulling them off the shelf and showing me, but he didn't. He sat down, ordered tea from his, his wife, and, uh, all right, maybe, maybe he asked for tea. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and she joined us for what turned out to be an afternoon of several pots of tea. And um, so we started drinking tea and talking. And uh, he was... A pretty scraggly looking character, but he had very intense and piercing eyes. And he could hold your gaze for as long as you were willing to look at it. He didn't turn away. 
And uh, I kept trying to get him to show me his collection. He said, nah, you're not bad. He just would find some... He was asking me about my life and what I was doing. And, and uh, eventually he said, oh, once you've seen one of them, you've seen them all. And I had this expectation that I would go and see this uh, exotic collection of colorful and a great variety of butterflies and from all parts of the world and would just be, you know, uh, really impressed. And so I asked him about it and he said, no, 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 he didn't collect butterflies like that. He said he used to, for a few years he collected butterflies from all over the world, but in the last few years he'd changed to just collecting one kind. And I said, you only collect one kind of butterfly? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he says, that's what I mean. You've seen one, you've seen them all. <laughs> so I said, well, show me anyway. So he said, well, pick any one you want. And here was, you know, like thousands of boxes on his wall. He says, pick any one you want. So I just, that one. So we pulled it down. And he opened up this box. And in it were about 40 butterflies, pins on pins, each one of them identified by sex, uh, location that it was found, and the date that it was found. And you couldn't tell the difference between one or the other. <laughs> they all looked perfectly alike, same size, same color, everything. But, you know, some were one year, some were another year, some were males, some were females. And they, in that box, they were all from the same location. And he told me that he didn't collect butterflies indiscriminately. He only collected 20 pair from each location. Each location being every mountain west of the Mississippi between 8,000 and 11,000 feet only. These butterflies hatch for two weeks of the year when violets are out. They feed on violets. And the butterflies from one mountain do not migrate to another. And he had been on every mountain from central Mexico to Alaska between 8,000 and 11,000 feet and it collected 20 pair from each spot. Well, that was pretty impressive. <laughs> he had collected between 30 and 35,000 butterflies. And as we continued to talk throughout the afternoon, two hours, three hours, three pots of tea, four pots of tea, and he was smoking like, like a storm, um, he just was telling me the stories of his collecting these butterflies. The people he met, the places he'd gone, the experiences he had. You can imagine if you've climbed every mountain between 8 and 11,000 feet west of the Mississippi. That's a lot of mountains. And this guy at the time was, what, 65, 70 years old then. He knew every mountain by name. He knew all the plants. You could pick any place in the west of the Mississippi, and he had been within 40 miles of it on some mountain. He had a vast, vast knowledge of all the plants, the animals, the butterflies, the climate, the weather, everything. And he was some hillbilly living in the woods of Maine. <clears throat> And as we were talking, he kept referring to Huey. And every time he would mention Huey, he'd go, he'd point his finger up. Me and Huey, we have an agreement. He doesn't bother me, I don't argue with him. After a while, I began to get the drift. 
Huey was his understanding of the great mystery of life. Whatever you want to call it, God, karma, the mystery, whatever, he called it Huey. <laughs> and he had an agreement with Huey. It wouldn't rain while he was collecting butterflies, and he wouldn't argue with Huey. Although he was just collecting butterflies, his knowledge was far greater than that. What we're doing here is collecting butterflies. Rising butterfly, falling butterfly, <laughs> lifting butterfly, moving butterfly, placing butterfly. What we learn and what we know is far greater than lifting, moving, placing, rising, falling. What is it we know? What is it we come to know? What do we understand from watching the breath or our movement? There are three types of knowledge that I want to mention, three types of understanding. The first is knowledge that's based on our thinking, pure thought, rational, logical, uh, speculative, abstract thought. It's our own thoughts from the power of our own mind. And we all know this type of uh, knowledge quite well. We do a lot of thinking, concluding, speculating, hypothesizing, figuring out. It's thought. It does reveal, it does yield some knowledge, not insight knowledge. A second type of knowledge is knowledge that is based on learning from others, whether it's from what I say as uh, someone that you hear, or any book that you have ever read. We gain a lot of knowledge, we gain a lot of understanding that way. We gain a lot of facts about the nature of life or the mind, if we're talking about psychology, the body, if we study anatomy, the truth, if we study philosophy or metaphysics. We get a lot of knowledge, a lot of facts, but not wisdom. And then there's knowledge based on mental development, on concentration, on the, con the knowledge of a concentrated mind. What a concentrated mind can come to know through direct observation. And the Buddha identified two general areas of knowledge, wisdom, that arises from direct observation. That knowledge that comes from pure tranquility practices, and that would be knowledge about the jhanas or deep, uh, deep absorptions, uh, knowledge about uh, uh, powers of mind, that powers of body, uh, reading others' minds, um, many <coughs> things that we would call quite, quite uh, mysterious. Those are from developed from uh, concentration or tranquility practice. And what we're most concerned with here is the knowledge that arises from insight practice. And the most important knowledge 
or piece of wisdom or understanding we can get from insight is direct experience of impermanence. Wisdom or knowledge has the characteristic of seeing things clearly, knowing the nature of experience, knowing the innate, the unique characteristic of each moment of the body, each moment of the mind. And when the mind is concentrated and sharp and really precise and able to enter into that momentary experience, it is as if a spotlight shines on that experience. The object, the experience becomes illuminated. We can see it. We can know it. The mind is precisely focused in knowing. When there's that much light on our experience, when there's that much focus, and we're able to, able to enter into the experience, there's no confusion as to what that experience is, what that object is, what the nature of the experience is. Non-bewilderment or non-confusion, non-delusion is the way that we recognize wisdom. So when we begin initial practice, trying to observe the rising, falling, or the in-breath, the out-breath, or the primary object in whatever we're doing. All three types of knowledge are present. There's the book knowledge. We, we've all studied some degree of anatomy, and so when we sit here and we try to focus on the breath, the movement of the abdomen, what do we know? Oh, we know that there's a stomach and an ab uh, muscles and there's a diaphragm and stuff like that. And as we try to be with the breath, that's what we see. That's what we feel. That's what we know. Oh, stomach, muscles, and, and things are moving. And, and we might feel what it actually feels like a little bit. All three types of knowledge, based on our thought, knowing that we're breathing, based on our understanding from what others have told us about anatomy, and some of our own direct experience is all fused together. Our knowledge is um, mixed. Our understanding is mixed. When we see, when we know, like the anatomy of our body, we know that this muscle or this bone or this joint <clears throat> or this diaphragm is doing something, we're not really seeing the innate characteristic of the object. What we're knowing is the form or the shape of the object. And when it moves, and we know it's moving, and we see this muscle stretching or this leg stretching or bending or whatever it is that we know, we're not knowing the innate characteristic of that experience. We're knowing its manner or the mode of that object. But when we can be with the breath, and know or feel or experience tightness, pressure, tension, vibrating, tingling, then we're knowing the innate characteristic, the inherent characteristic of that experience. 
So as we continue practice, or as we, we continue to focus on just that type of knowledge, our mind gets concentrated, is able to separate out conceptual knowledge of anatomy from experiential knowledge of the experience, the characteristics of it. Sometimes in the beginning of practice, we're able to stay with the breath, either at the nose, at the at the abdomen, or we're able to stay with our walking and know that that's what's happening without actually experiencing it. Without actually feeling what's happening, we know we're breathing in, breathing out, it's really conceptual knowledge. We can get tremendously concentrated, tremendously still and calm and focused without any hindrances arising and without any insight knowledge. Calm and tranquil only. But as we continue to stay in, in, in looking at trying to feel and be with the sensations of our experience, we begin to see, we begin to notice, we begin to feel what's happening. And the first thing that happens is we begin to tune into our inner life, what's going on in the body, what's going on in the mind. And for many of us, what we see is utterly fascinating. Our fantasies, our thoughts, our memories, our fears, our joys, our plans. Our problems, our emotions. And we get caught there. We get so tantalized or so fascinated with what's going on there that we work with it, we play with it, we hang out there. And a lot of us at different times have done therapy of one sort or another and have found that to be useful. And so we continue doing it here. It's not wrong, it's not bad, and it's not all that can happen. A certain amount of understanding ourselves from a psychological point of view is necessary for further practice. And that's what we're doing when we do our therapy on the cushion is adjusting our view, our understanding of ourself, our self-image in such a way that we can then go further into developing the mind's ability to stay still. The belief that formal meditation is a form of therapy is a limiting belief. And if that's the understanding you have of meditation practice, that may be all you get from meditation practice. I want to talk about other types of knowledge that can arise or can be seen, can be known from training the mind's ability to be attentive. When we say to label your experience, it's not a simple thing to do. 
as you've noticed, as you've discovered. Because it takes some real steadiness of mind to be with the experience in such a way that you can identify whether it's stretching or pressure or tightness or itching or heat or cold or vibrating or tingling or in the mind, whether it's disappointment, whether it's frustration, whether it's joy, sadness, fear, or what. And we ask you to label so that you can begin to get in touch with the non-psychological aspects of experience. So that we note stretching instead of muscles, bones, and ankles. Or so that we note hearing instead of the object that we hear, the bell, the car, the coughing. Or so that we note smelling instead of the object of perfume or something else. And when we train our mind to stay present with the process of what's happening, the hearing, the smelling, the tasting, the touching, we begin to disengage our mind from the content of our experience and develop our ability to be attentively present with each moment of experience. One yogi came in the other day, one yogini came in the other day, and she says, what am I supposed to be aware of? The experience or the knowing of it? And I said, fantastic, both. That is as clear a description of the first mini insight into the nature of what's going on here, that there is an experience and there is the knowing of it in every moment. When the awareness is not fused with the experience, we know there's this physical sensation, there's this mental experience, and I know it. First mini insight is the beginning of training the mind to be attentive, seeing things as they inherently or characteristically are. That is the beginning of catching butterflies. Without that ability to be with, to recognize and to know the innate characteristic of each moment, we can't develop wisdom. Any other, anything that's, any wisdom we have without seeing that innate nature is purely speculative. And until we see that, until we see that that's the nature of our experience, the knowing of mental and physical phenomena, we haven't begun. But as we continue, we begin to see more. We begin to see more of each experience. The mind can stay steadier for a longer period of time. We can see how an experience arises, one after the other. We begin to get more concentrated, see more details. Unfortunately, what we begin to see is a lot of unpleasantness. The body becomes really unbearably oppressive 
tightness, aching, heat, pain, itching, throbbing, pulsing. What else have you reported? Tightness, tension. It's not wrong. We see it because our mindfulness has improved. Our concentration has gotten better. The mind is steadier. Seeing things more clearly, more precisely, more distinctly. And so when we have an experience that we don't like, that we dislike and have aversion to, what do we notice? How much aversion we have. And a lot of us report, we come in and report, aversion, unbelievable amounts of aversion. Congratulations, your mindfulness is improving. Now you see how much there is. Or we see how much fantasizing we do of uh, well, what one teacher likes to call holidays in hell. <laughs> can't get out of it. Can't detach ourselves. We're so attached to or stuck on a particular fantasy. And we know it. And we keep noting it. It won't go away. We're just stuck there in fantasy, fantasy, fantasy. Good. Your mindfulness is improving. You're beginning to see just how attached you are. We don't recognize this as wisdom. We think there's something wrong with our practice. This is the beginning of wisdom. So sometimes we don't have so much dukkha, not so much physical pain, not so much uh, attachment or aversion. Sometimes we can just settle in and see things come and go quite easily. And what do we notice? How good our practice is. How good a yogi I am. And we start thinking how right the Buddha was. Karma really does work that way. Desire and aversion really do work that way. We start having insight into the validity of the Buddha's teaching or what you hear in Dharma talks. We affirm it. We verify it. It's true. And we're often running, speculating about how great the Dharma is. It's not wrong. It's not bad. And it's not the end of practice. It sees everything. And as we continue, we begin to see as we continue to focus on primary objects, momentary, secondary objects, we begin to see how each one arises here, lasts for a brief moment, and disappears here. One object after another. Sometimes we have to note it two or three or four or ten times, and it disappears. Sometimes it'll move from one part of the body to another. Sometimes you'll be watching something or you'll be having a, a vision or a fantasy or a thought, and as you watch it, it's as if you telescope away from it. It disappears. Again, still a lot of mm, physical discomfort, of, a lot of choking comes up in this, in this stage of practice. A lot of aching, a lot of tension around the throat. You might have noticed. And there's a lot of thoughts about mm, 
very um, light and spiritual and wonderful and holy and um, good things. Teachers and meditation centers and people, and it's just very light and lovely. And the other side of that is the dark and low and really disgusting. And we have a lot of thoughts, a lot of fantasies, a lot of uh, memories, a lot of speculating in both areas. At this time, we begin to see more clearly how each and every experience arises and passes away, arises and passes away, arises and passes away. And it leads to a tremendous amount of speculation on the nature of impermanence, both outside of ourselves, in, 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 in whether it's the seasons and the coming and going of uh, anything, or inside of ourselves, the impermanence of the body, the mind, the emotions, the thoughts, the plans, the fantasies. And we begin to reflect a lot on the unsatisfactory nature of experience. Someone came in the other day and said, you know, we are nothing but a mass of... (laughs) What did he say? We are nothing but a mass of suffering. She says, everything, every experience is unpleasant. Nothing. And she says, it's always changing. Really beginning, she says, now I'm beginning to see in here. Not just think about it, but I'm beginning to see it inside myself. That that's the nature of experience. When we begin to see the characteristics of all of our experience being impermanent, unsatisfactory, and pretty much out of our control, it's where we begin to develop insight. Insight is the English translation of the word vipassana. And vipassana is a compound word of vi and pasana. Pasana means to know or to see or to have knowledge of. And vi means um, all characteristics. So it's knowing or having knowledge of the characteristics of all experience and the impermanent, the unsatisfactory nature, and the impersonal nature of all experience is what we begin to see most. We may not know what's going by, just the fact that something has gone by. We may not know the nature of the unsatisfactory experience, except that it's just unsatisfactory, oppressive, tormenting. Inside is that training of the mind, is that development of mental vision and discernment that can see into um, both the, the inner characteristic of experience and the underlying truth of all experience. It sees much deeper than the appearance of things. The appearance of things is the content of our mind. Insight is into the process of our mind.
as we begin to see this in ourself, in our own experience, in our own body, in our own mind, we know it. We witness it for ourselves. It's as if we're a scientist of our mind, of our body. And we begin to understand the impermanent nature. It may not be what we came here to discover. Probably nobody would say that we came here to experience dukkha <laughs> or impermanence or the insubstantial nature of yourself. Did anybody come here for that reason? Not likely. And yet that's what we get. Even though it's not what we're looking for, it is profound. And it can change your life. It will change your life. Because we begin to see that the experience we have come and go. What's important is our relationship to it. Pain comes, pain goes. Joy comes, joy goes. Thoughts come, thoughts go. Attachment comes, attachment goes. Aversion comes, aversion goes. Now we're beginning to see that our relationship to it either brings us happiness and contentment or unhappiness and suffering. In the first weeks of the retreat, pain was unbearable. A lot of unhappiness. Now all of you have some experience, some ability to sit with great discomfort in the body and not be unhappy. Has the pain changed? No. Has your relationship to it changed? Yes. This is the beginning of wisdom. Changing your relationship to your experience. When we begin to see that everything is impermanent, that the good sitting of this morning isn't here now, or that the bad uh, mind state of this afternoon also isn't here now, we can begin to settle back with whatever's happening and know that it's going to change, pleasant or unpleasant. Why grasp it? Why be averse to it? It's not a rational process. It's not a rational thing, a relationship that we have to this. It's a relationship that we've developed through making every possible mistake we could. I remember just the other day I read something. Someone said, wisdom, uh, something like, wisdom is what we get after we've exhausted every other possibility. <laughs> something to that effect. And that's about the way it is for us. We'll try every way possible to get rid of the pain before we just decide to accept it. Let it be there. Relate to it with indifference. Or the same with joy, or pleasantness. When we begin to see the unsatisfactory nature of all of our experience, can we begin to understand how freeing that is to see nothing but dukkha? <laughs> if everything is, if all of your experience is dukkha, what are you looking for? 
what are you waiting for? I mean, what, what do you expect to, to be non-dukkha? Freeing, tremendously freeing not to have to search for anything. To realize that it's not going to bring you what you want. We don't understand. This is wisdom. We don't understand. When we begin to see that all of our experience is out of our control, it arises out of its own reasons, it passes under it in its own time. We can't make it happen, we can't stop it from happening. All we can do is be with it. Frees us from every responsibility for it. We didn't make it happen. It's not my pain, not my disappointment. It comes. I'm with it, I'm aware of it, it's not me. Tremendous freedom of mind in that. Not from thinking it. We can't think ourselves free from our disappointment, our pain, our fear, our jealousy. But when we sit here with it day after day, piece by piece we disengage from it. We learn to relate to it with wisdom, without aversion, without grasping, freely. And like Paul Gray, who collects butterflies and knows far more than that, we too collect experience and know far more than that. Insight, or wisdom, development of wisdom, is really the process of inquiry. Inquiring into what this experience is. And in fact, the Buddha talks about, in many places, the nature of wisdom being investigation. One of the factors of enlightenment, one of the uh, Eightfold Path. When we hear in talks or read in books or understand, read the Buddha's words, we can recognize the truth of what someone says recognize the truth of what the Buddha taught. But in that recognition, it's mere knowledge to us. It's mere facts. It's not our experience until we sit with it, until we discover it in our own body, in our own mind. Then it becomes our own. It becomes wisdom for us, not just knowledge. One thing that we like to do a lot is try to describe our understanding, our experience, our insight. Please don't waste your time. A momentary glimpse into the fleeting nature of a phenomena can take weeks to figure out how to describe. A momentary glimpse into and a recognition of the nature of dukkha. To try to tell somebody about it is a book. Staying with your experience deepens our understanding of impermanence, of unsatisfactoriness, of the impersonality. 
And that's what this time is so valuable for here, deepening our experience of the truth. The yogi came in the other day and said, another yogini came in the other day and said, I was listening to a talk the other night and I almost got it. And I said, right, don't try to get it. If it comes, fine. If it doesn't, fine. Don't struggle. Don't think. Let it, let it reveal itself in your own experience. In this inquiry, in this investigation into our experience, to understand, to discover what it is that we are, what it is that we know, what it is that we understand, Who can validate that for you? Who can verify for you that, yes, you're seeing the truth? Yes, you're seeing Anicca. Yes, you're seeing Dukkha. Yes, you're seeing Nibbana or whatever. Yes, you're enlightened. Who can tell you that? Who can tell you if you're not suffering anymore? Only you. And one way to understand, one way to reflect on your practice, to really verify for yourself that, if you're interested, that there's some wisdom developing. Are you seeing impermanence? Are you seeing dukkha? Or the unsatisfactory nature? Are you seeing the impersonal nature of your experience? When we see deeply into our life of a mind and body, and we see that this is the way things are, we act and behave with that knowledge. And you can ask yourself, what makes you really happy? What really, what really makes you happy? Not what do you enjoy, or what do you find pleasure in, or what excites you, or what satisfies you. But what in your life truly brings happiness? When I was in Burma, in 1988, they had a political uprising. And it was quite brutally suppressed by the military. <clears throat> and in the middle of it, it was about it was a several months that this was going on. I started doing metta practice because I felt so much compassion for the people who were suffering so much with that government and, and the, the violence that was going on. And I was practicing metta for all of the people who were protesting for democracy. And I was going into Sidor and telling him about my practice and that I was using the people of, that were marching in the street as my object for metta. And after a while, he let me do this for a couple of weeks. And then he said, what about the military men? And I realized that I had kind of cut them out. I hadn't really thought that they were worthy of metta. But when I reflected on it, I realized 
Indeed, they too were suffering. They were caught in conditions as much as the protesters. And they too were suffering, having to be in the position that they were. And when I was able to develop metta for them also, the people on both sides of the gun, truly dropped into a level of happiness. Hard to believe happiness in such a situation, but it's true. Wishing happiness or wishing love or understanding compassion for both sides of an argument brings happiness. Developing a spirit of generosity, being able to share what you have, time, money, knowledge, material goods, brings happiness. Practicing insight, understanding the nature of this life, this mind, this body. Definitely not pleasant, not always enjoyable, certainly not satisfying. Mm -hmm. But ask yourself, is there some deeper happiness being revealed? Is there some understanding that brings happiness to your life here? In some ways, we can understand the whole path of practice being a deepening understanding of and an increasingly subtle perception of impermanence, the unsatisfactory nature, and the impersonality of all of our life. This understanding, this wisdom, this knowledge is the fifth uh, spiritual faculty. And you can see that as the mind gets steadier, more concentrated, more focused, more precise, we see more, we understand more, we know more. Faith is the balance for wisdom. With an excess of faith or confidence, and not much wisdom, we can really be quite blind in our faith, quite goo-goo-ga-ga, as I like to say, or quite foolish with our confidence, with our faith, ungrounded, unfounded faith. Excess wisdom or excess understanding is worse. If If our wisdom is based on the knowledge of others and we don't have the faith to practice, the Buddha said that that condition is like a disease that is caused by the medicine to cure it. The more you take, the sicker you get. Something to reflect on. We who in this culture devour books like medicine, Maybe we need to look at how much faith we have to actually practice, to put into actual body, mind, experience what it is we think we know, what it is we've read, what it is we've heard. 
But when faith and confidence and wisdom are balanced, we can practice with confidence. And as we increase our understanding, as we see more of our actual experience, we can verify our faith, our confidence. And all of the spiritual faculties work together, reciprocally supporting each other. Faith, supporting our energy, supporting our mindfulness, supporting our concentration, supporting our wisdom or understanding. Wisdom, understanding, in turn, supporting an increase in development of faith. In conclusion, I have to tell a story. I called the butterfly collector today in Maine. He's 83 now. He's bedridden with terminal emphysema. He's given his butterfly collection to the American Museum in New York. His wife died two weeks ago. He's done got long. And he said, I told him that I was going to tell a story about him tonight. And then we talked for a half hour or so, and he filled me in on some more details. And it was generally really good to talk to him. And he said, look, he says, uh, at the end of the conversation, he says, look, if, if you're going to tell, if you're going to talk about me, you've got to tell this one story. You've got to promise. So I said, all right, I will. So this is the story that he asked me to tell you. Back in the old days, when he used to travel out west each year to collect his butterflies, one year he was going over the Sierra Tioga Pass, which is the gateway into Yosemite. And it was in the time before they had um, fixed up the road. And he said that uh, it was still a dirt road, and it was switchbacks, and it was extremely steep. He said in about three miles you dropped about 5,000 feet. And he said it was just hell on your car. It was really difficult. And um, he said that at the time he had gone out there with his wife. His wife used to go with him every, everywhere he went. Um, it was illegal to, take, to even take a butterfly net into Yosemite. So he used to camp just outside of Yosemite. And he said as he was approaching the, the, the pass, or approaching the entrance to Yosemite, he saw, parked alongside the road, a car, and out in the field there were these two people with butterfly nets, catching butterflies. And so he pulled off to the side of the road and... Uh, he watched him for a while, and then he got his net and went out to meet them, or to greet them. And uh, these were two young people, and they were catching the same species of butterfly that he used to catch, or that he was after. So he recognized that there were two species very similar in this field. And these people had caught some, and they, they in, in talking with them, uh, they said, uh, he asked them, well, what are you catching? And they said, uh, well, we don't really know what the, 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 what, what the name of this one is. And um, he looked at it and he said, uh, oh, that's the, that's the uh, Mormonia, named after the Mormons. And he said, uh, he said he could tell because you can look at the males, and the males are slightly different between these two closely related species, but the females are not. 
So he was looking at the two male, the, the butterflies that they had caught, identified the males, and identified what species was that they had, that they had. So he told them, oh, that's Mormonia. And they said, oh. And he said, um, we were catching them, we didn't know what they were, but we were going to send them to Gray up in Maine for identification. <laughs> and he says, he says, my name's Gray, I'm from Maine. <laughs> and the woman said, not the Paul Gray. And he says, yep. Yeah. And he says, that really did my heart good. So, when one becomes knowledgeable and wise and understanding, it really does your heart good. So, let's sit for a couple of minutes and catch our butterflies. <laughs>